So I am the first of the community voices. For those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm Robert's wife, Ruth, and um, I head up the children's ministry and um, with a whole host of wonderful volunteers who are holding the fort down back there while I'm out here. Um, when Robert assigned the community voices, he said to pick the scriptures of the day and um, see how they speak to you and uh, your witness. Is this good? Am I? Move it down. Move it down. Move it down. Move it up. I've never been mic'd before. Okay. Right here? Perfect. Perfect, they said. Um, at 8 o'clock, I was breathing through it. So that was, that was real exciting. Anyway, so he said, take the scriptures and study them and see how they speak to your witness. And then use the Church of the Apostles uh, mission statement, which is to gather, form, and send out. So today, I got to look at the fall of mankind. Or I got to look at the gospel, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. How exciting, you know? I, but this is the grace of God. Actually, this past Lent, we had a book study here that I led um, on this book, The Very Good Gospel. And the primary text that this used was the, um, the first three chapters of Genesis. And it really gave me a whole nother understanding of the fall. So I'm actually very exciting, and that's, that's where I'm going. I'm not going to that blasphemy part. So, um, so let's, let's, let's pray first. Come Holy Spirit, take our lips and speak with them. Take our lives and work through them. And take our heart and set it on fire for the love of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned, we had this book study, and we gathered it up here during Lent on Friday night. Now, reading the book was the easy part. Giving up six nights, six Friday nights in a row turned out to be my Lenten discipline, to be quite honest. But... It's amazing to me when you actually do, and I know many of you do this, when you gather with other believers and you study the scriptures and you, you really use context and other resources, how much it enlightens um, your understanding of them, of course. Um, when we look at the fall, I realized that I was carrying some real baggage about the fall. I don't know about y'all, but I've always kind of thought that it was our fault. And by our, our, I mean our women. It's our fault, right? We're the ones that did it. You know, I see Eric nodding right there. Okay, because you know all the jokes that we hear. So here's one. If Eve sacrificed the human race for an apple, what would you do for a Kondike bar? <laughs> so you had to be in the 80s to understand that one. That's those commercials. Here's another one in case that didn't work, but y'all chuckled. What excuse did Adam give his children as to why he no longer lived in Eden? Your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> so my point here is, and those, those kind of hang, don't they? You know, we culturally have had that drilled into us, which is wrong. It's a wrong idea about the fall. And so what I wanted to talk about is... That, that very right idea about the fall and how to correct those images. 
And the first place I wanted to go was that it was Eve's fault, that she was all to blame. But that's a whole nother sermon, actually. And I really am te was tempted, if you know me personally, you know that that's where I would want to go, this whole mankind and man versus woman. And the Holy Spirit didn't take me there. And I think Robert is real relieved that that didn't happen. <laughs> so, well, if he keeps letting me do that, maybe I'll be out here again. Um, but really, I've been burdened by this whole, what appears to me, a temptation setup. Um, I mean, God is here. He's created this beautiful garden. He's had these two trees. If we read up in Genesis 2, we learn about the two trees in the garden. And he tells to Adam, oh, yeah, you can't eat that one. Okay, I'll be back in a little while and leave you, but don't eat that one. It reminds me of those, um, they're on social media, the YouTubes, where they have uh, a toddler in front of a bowl of candy, their favorite treat. Have you all seen that? And the parent says, now, don't eat it. I'll be right back, and you can have it, but don't eat it. And then the parent leaves, and then you see this video of this poor, tormented toddler sitting in front of the open bowl of their favorite candy like, tempted and it's it's quite hysterical at their at their mercy of them it's cruel it's really cruel um so is this what god did has he set us up um sometimes it seems like it doesn't it but i wonder now if you know me and if i use the word i wonder this is going to be my transition to godly play what we do in our children's ministry, how we do our children's ministry. Um, in that ministry, we take a beautiful way of telling the sweeping story of the seven days of creation. And this is the images that we give the children. Um, and we do this story every year for for every age. So if the children start in pre-K all the way through fifth grade, they're going to hear this story up to possibly seven times about creation and that how God made it and it was good, just like our opening hymn, which is so beautifully tells that same story. But we stop on the sixth day when God made man and we do something very special. We put our hand on it and we say, and it was very good. We want the children to have that deep, deep, deep down in their spirit that God made them in his image, and it's very good. I think it's important to have that before we get to the fall. And so my question for you is, do you have that deep, deep down in you, that God made you, and you are very good? Um, that's where we start from. So he gave us everything, and he created it all. It was very good. He created everything, even the sea monsters. So the book we studied, Sharon Harper, she highlights the creation of the great sea monsters. And I didn't know this, but it was very enlightening that the Hebrew word underlining that phrase is used in the Canaanite mythology to name a dreaded sea monster, their dreaded animal. It was almost as if the writers of first Gen the Genesis, first Genesis were making fun of the Babylonian gods. 
It's like they said, yes, God created the great sea monster, and it was very good, which would not land on where they thought. So God made sea monsters, and then she points out that that's a good thing. And I, I wonder why that is a good thing. Because God is above everything. God is above our greatest fears. And moreover, all of creation is subject to God. But why did God allow or create these seemingly bad things? Sea monsters, fears, snakes, forbidden trees. Are these good things? If we use logic, they're good. God created everything. Everything God created is good. God created sea monsters and snakes and trees, so they must be good. It seemed like a tough one to me. But Harper pointed out that it's good that the waters and the sea monsters are part of God's creation. It is good that the sea monsters' presence drives people to trust God. It is good that when we encounter deserts, wilderness in our lives and in our world, we are driven back into the protective care of our creator, God. So this takes us to the fall and why I'm excited. Genesis 1 and 2, if you go read them, show this beautiful, genuine love relationship from God and humanity. And that that relationship is all interconnected with all of us, even with creation. We're completely interconnected with each other. I mean, think about the story. God brought light out of darkness. God breathed life into us. God created a beautiful, abundant garden. How much more lovely and a loving relationship is that? But he gave one commandment, and that's the big part. Harper says in the book that the two trees that stand in the center of the garden are also the central part of this loving rule, that this we really understand how God's loving rule is done. He gave that one commandment. You cannot eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Trust me, he says. Love me, he says. So it really is not a commandment, is it? It's a question. Do you love me? Do you trust me? To me, that changed everything when I thought of it like that. Not something we can't do, but something he's asking us to do. Love him. And it's a very, very intimate question. Do you love me? And then you, you think about how many times we have broken those vows of love. The vows we have with God, with our own relationships, with ourselves, with creation. So the question arises that for every encounter between us, the humans, and the trees, do I love God? To love God is to trust God, to choose God, and to choose God's way to peace and wholeness. But we know what happened, didn't we? Eve didn't trust God. And we know what happens to us. We don't trust God always. Sometimes um, there are reasons. Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's not. 
The serpent put doubt in Eve's mind. Have you ever been there with doubt and confusion? Do, you know, how do we love one another? How do we love God? That doubt and that confusion. But then there's the shame, the hiding from God. Do we have that? Did God give us that? I don't think he gave us that because I think we had the tree, after we ate, we had the knowledge of good and evil. Now we know better what to do. That's just how a child gets. They know better after they've done it. Or maybe another way of looking at it is not guilt and shame, but sadness. Sad that we hurt God and that we hurt each other. So what is next? I think this is a part of the fall story that we forget. If you remember the story, God comes back and asks for them. And Eve confesses. Confession. Plain and simple. I did it. Last week, Robert said God is inviting us to get over ourselves and to get closer to him. And I think that's exactly what happened in the garden. God knew what was going on. And um, he was calling them out. Adam kind of came out. He, he halfway confessed. It wasn't quite a full confession. But Eve said, I did it. Both of them confessed. And then this is the huge part. They gave it to God, and God took care of it. Yes, things are broken, and there will now be consequences, not punishment. There's consequences. That's another way I never really thought of it. I thought of these brokenness as punishment, but it's really consequences. He told them what was going to happen, what these consequences were going to be, and that wasn't pretty. And then the very end of that scripture reading, I don't know if you all heard that, he made clothes for them out of skin to replace those wimpy fig leaves that they had put together. Um, now, some commentaries you read will say this was God being gracious and taking care of them, giving them substantial clothing. But in our study, it became evident to us that this skin had to come from an animal. And animals had never been killed before in the garden. God had to kill one of his creations for us. Does that sound familiar? Forbearing to Christ, giving for us. How sad that must have made him to take one of his creatures of creation and give him to us. So what does that all mean to us? What about these consequences? The other day, just this week, past weekend, I was cleaning out yet more books of our children. We have four children. They're all gone, and we have all this stuff left over from them. And, uh, and so we're cleaning out constantly their stuff. And I found this one, which is evidently um, neither male nor female. I went, hmm, that sounds interesting. That would have been that other sermon I was going to preach. And it was the study of scriptures. Um, one of our daughters studied religion, so it's clearly a textbook. And I, and I thought, well, I'm preaching on the fall. And that was the first chapter. I, th I, I looked through it um, to hear what they said about these consequences of the fall. And this is what this author says. Most, this is, what she, this is what she says are the consequences, really. Must women bear children in sorrow? No, but it will happen. Is the serpent bound to bruise the heel of her seed? No, but God prophesies that it will, he will do so. Must man rule woman whether he wishes to or not? No, 
But God, who sees the end from beginning, knows that man will do so. These are consequences, not punishments. Creation suffered because of Adam's sin. The flood is evidence of this. And the earth shuddered and darkness fell upon the land when the Lord Jesus became sin for us. In the end times in which we are now living, earthquakes, violent storms, hurricanes are increasing. And the Bible warns us that we will continue to do so as well. Just a footnote, this book is old. It was before climate change. So um, that can be some heavy stuff, and that can be very depressing if it was the end of the story in the end of my sermon, but it's not. Here's the end. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to our Corinthians reading. Um, Paul is saying this to the Corinthians, who also lived in very dark times. You know, we think... Every generation thinks theirs is the darkest times. There have been dark times since this beginning of the fall. But if we turn to chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. And present us with you in his presence. Do you believe that? Do you believe you are part of God's creation? Made in his image. And that that is very good. And he loves you. And he gave us Jesus. If you do. And you can answer that question. Do you love me? Read on. If I skip down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. We ate that apple, and it's all broken. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. Grace has come upon us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As some of you know, my mother passed away this January. Um, she was 92. She was a centerpiece of my previous sermons. I've used her in my sermons before. So I thought this was appropriate that I use her in this one as well. My mother began what hospice call active dying Christmas Eve. For the next 10 days, my brother and I both cared for her. It was amazing how quickly the wasting away went. And for that speed, we were actually very grateful. But during those 10 days, she gave me glimpses of the unseen. For those of you who have been with loved ones who pass, I suspect you know what I mean. The people they talked to, she called out to her mother the visions they, she saw, they see, she saw water, she saw beautiful children, and she saw cats, lots and lots of cats. We didn't even know she really liked cats. <laughs> and that faraway stares when they're looking right through you to someone else. But it was at the end where I experienced the most powerful presence of the unseen. 
she had been having the death rattle for hours, if you know about that. And my brother and I were alternating sitting with her. And the hour she passed, we just happened to both be sitting on either side of her, holding her hand. We kept watching her breaths, breathing up. You know, we would say to each other, I think that's it. No, there's another one. I think that's it. I mean, it was like that. And, but I will never forget when she passed. The shutters in her bedroom were wide open, and it was a bright, beautiful, sunny winter day. And when she took that last breath, I physically felt her leave her body. It was so powerful that I turned and watched it go out the window. And then when I turned back and looked at my mother on the bed, there was not a speck of my mother in that bodily form. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.